Hello, and today I'm in London to meet the hacker, conceptual artist and curator, Moogs, aka Matthew O'Donnell. Hello Moogs. Hello there. And welcome to my podcast. It's great to be here, Robert. Well, we've got so much to talk about, but first of all, I have to say we are sitting in the most amazing apartment overlooking the Ducklands, and you moved in today. That's it, got the keys today, yeah. So I am the very first visitor to this. And now how high up are we roughly? Oh, well, which floor are we on? We're on the 31st floor. 31st floor, yeah. because for my listeners, I have to paint this picture. We have the most incredible view over London, over the Docklands, out towards the greenery and, and the, the mast in the distance and, and the new developments and the little boats and, and stuff just kind of beetling away in the distance. It's absolutely mesmerising. Yeah, yeah, I love this. Uh, it's a whole new perspective on the world when you're above the clouds. And you're saying that you're going to turn this into a little art space? It's going to be a space where Mark Westall from FAD and I are essentially setting up. There'll be one-off events that will be here where, uh, looking out of the windows, we will see a new world imagined by artists and we'll be looking to get cutting-edge curators and, and digital artists who can transform what we see when we look at the real world and start playing with the notion of introducing an extra layer of hyper-reality to like an area which is already extremely like walking around inside a computer simulation. So I think the uh, extension of uh, reality, hyper-reality and augmented reality by using projection mapping and, uh, and projection filters on the windows to transform what we see when we look outside. Yeah, there could be myriad uh, different statements that could be made when uh, thinking about looking out the window and changing the world. That's the guiding principle for uh, Above the Clouds. Brilliant. But also it intrigues me because with this hacker dimension, you've almost got like your kind of the eagle in your kind of nest. I have all these ideas in my mind of, of what it must be like to, to, to be a hacker. Well, well how, do you, how did you come to be a hacker? How does one join the club? Oh, what it was, yeah, when I was 13, I saw the film Hackers. And I identified with the characters and the, the whole kind of ethical approach and also the kind of sneakily getting in somewhere. And I, th I found myself identifying as a hacker when I was 13. I didn't have any technical skill. And eventually I actually got, I got hacked myself. And uh, it was at that point that I decided to start learning. And um, that would take the form of uh, reading in the library and downloading text files off random text websites with kind of information and tutorials and in those days, like in say like 1998, 1999, there wasn't the rich mine of information that there is now. So if somebody wants to get into the Hacker Club now, it's actually quite straightforward. And so, so give, me a, give me a sense of the kind of mental landscape or translate it for somebody into what it means. Because I kind of think, in, I'm trying to think of a, a good analogy and I'm kind of trying to think in terms of like, property or something like that and things like theft and, and, and all of those dynamics around boundaries and borders and what would be a good analogy for it in the real world? Is there, is there one? I suppose it could be like picking a lock. The act of lock picking requires skill, patience and 
a an, an amount of learning that's been invested in it before attempting to lock uh, pick the lock. The other dimension would be whose lock is it? In terms of where those skills are used, that's where the boundary traversal starts to get really interesting, and that comes down to somebody's own kind of ethical framework that they had in place before they learned the skill. So if somebody has a desire to be benevolent, or if they have a desire to be malicious, that is already kind of part of their personality construction before they've learned to pick the lock. So that would determine whose lock they're going to pick. Is it going to be to help somebody, or is it going to be to get in somewhere and do something dodgy? So I think I first met you at um, an event that you were putting together called Heist, which was going to be a world first, well it was a world first, uh, art exhibition uh, in a hacker chat room aesthetic um, and we met at a collective called The Rising Sun, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. And for me, I just, this was the most amazing, have you, have you seen Mr. Robot? Yes. I just thought I'd walked onto the set of Mr. Robot there. For those who haven't seen it, it was one of these, I don't know whether it was Netflix or one of these, uh, uh, and it was based around the life of a hacker who had multiple personalities and his um, struggles with himself and against the systems quote. And, and it all takes place in this kind of basement uh, place that uh, is, is their, their, their home. And I just thought, this, this is the real life Mr. Robot. Yeah, I think um, that basement that we were in, that whole dark green on black aesthetic, yeah, that's, that was like being in a hacker lair, wasn't it? It was. And I must confess, I started calling you Mr. Robot <laughs> thereafter. <laughs> so you are in my mind, Mr. Robot. And the, then the first time that I came to see you, I thought I was so freaked out. I thought, I've got to leave anything digital, electrical, <laughs> in the car. I've got no, you know, you could, you could just be kind of wiping my data as we speak, which you could, and I'd have no way of knowing. And I find that really, Curious, that power dynamic that you have. Yeah, that does sound quite terrifying. Are you aware of that power, power <laughs> dynamic that you have? No, I don't, I, I, I don't think I... No, I'm, I'm, apart from hearing it firsthand like that, no, it's not something that's on my radar. Because oh, I, really, I was really thinking, because I don't know you, and I, know, well, I didn't know you, and I didn't know that uh, I knew that you were a hacker, and I was thinking, and it becomes a matter of trust. Yeah. Because you hold all the cards. Mm. You said to me um, one time, because I was, again, I love analogies, and I think you used the analogy of a car. Yeah. Do you want to say, tell yeah. me about that? So I used the analogy of having somebody that works in a garage as a mechanic that fixes cars. You've got somebody that works in a showroom, they sell cars. You've got car, somebody washing the cars, and then you've got a car thief. So uh, as a car thief, I wouldn't necessarily know how best to wash a car. In fact, when I was a kid, I used to do that, and I was terrible. But I wouldn't know how to fix a car. I don't know, I might be able to have a go at selling a car, but I don't really know anything about them, but I could definitely pop open the door and get the engine started and drive off. <laughs> I know, and that was, that was the part of it that made me think, whoa, so what, <laughs> what, what, what am I dealing with here? <laughs> Is there, is there this kind of subterranean parallel universe going on with, you know, there's a bit, we're, we're, we are in this world of fake news and conspiracy theories and so on. I mean, and presumably, well, I don't know, I don't want to pre presume anything, but I don't know what you can say about 
about this kind of nether world of hacking and counter hacking and state sponsored stuff. I mean, it's you know, you just get these these kind of inklings of it in the press every once in a while. But is there this kind of subterranean world? There is definitely a subterranean world, and in fact, there are some that are closer to the surface. So, the first community that I'm um, bringing to mind is the open source community. So, open source software is definitely very benevolent, and a lot of the hacker community are actively engaged in open source software. So. We write tools, we release them, other people look at the code, they improve it, they add features and it's all very collaborative and it's very, it feels egalitarian and it enables people to do things quicker. That's uh, the healthiest part of the subterranean culture. There is another element to software creation which is malware development. So this is where it's possible to buy on the darknet what's called commodity malware, which is something you can buy and you can perform a ransomware attack and you basically get to customize the malware so that you have your, uh, your own cryptocurrency wallet in there and somebody's data will get swiped and they'll just see an, an image saying, basically, we, we've got your data, pay us. So at that point, the organized crime groups that are loitering around in those forums that are selling their services and products, there's a whole economic system that drives all of that, the sale of people's identities at scale, credit card numbers that you can just buy for pennies. That's definitely veering way more towards the fraud element of the hacker world. And that's very much the black hat hacker world as in the bad guys. It is, it is incredible. You must be incredibly street aware because I mean, presumably hack can be hacked. You know, if you go into some of these places, you could come out wiped clean yourself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's a, a sound art piece that I did where I've targeted CERN, the nuclear research center in, in Switzerland, where the Large Hadron Collider lives. So as, as part of that, what I was doing was essentially like looking at the CERN perimeter network and um, that's basically part of a, a, a process called reconnaissance that you do at the beginning. So checking out what you can get access to and what is presented to the internet is, is like the first first part of, the, uh, of, of a, any kind of engagement. It's called an engagement basically, which is military language. Yeah, so when targeting something like a nuclear research facility, the key thing is to find the, the like the research data, like the designs for things like reactors and seeing if it's possible to steal or tamper with those designs. Yeah, that, I think my favorite targets are in the nuclear world. I, th I think that there's a real connection between existential risk and the, the 1960s terror with this very modern internet driven approach to interrogating nuclear research. So I did uh, an engagement where I was targeting uh, essentially the software behind a, a reactor and uh, yeah and I, 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 it was very well protected but uh, I managed to find a glitch in some of their code and, and get access to it and I, I said to them if I'm here you better believe our, our, uh, our friends in China and Russia have already trampled around so that's outrageous well it's, well, it's incredible well it's a, it's, a, it's a testament to your skill that you can get right into the heart of a nuclear reactor. Yes, scary. But it's also pretty, pretty <laughs> scary stuff. Yeah. And I should make clear, well, at least I'm assuming that this was paid work that yeah. you were done to, as it were, test out the system and, and yeah. an, an attempt to compromise it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Um, having legal authorization is essential. Yeah, that's not an option for sure. I get the impression also that you love it so much that there is the thrill of the chase in, in, a, in a funny sort of a way. And um, if it wasn't there, you'd miss it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's very true. Um, I have literally been chased in a building where uh, I, I, I was working on an organisation with 25,000 people and I had been essentially causing havoc at the behest of my customer. And uh, on the final day of the engagement, there were seven people who were try who knew that there was a hacker somewhere on the premises and were trying to, because I was plugged directly in with my laptop and they were literally going through all the rooms looking for somebody. And eventually they found me and a uh, big guy opens the door and he says, can you unplug your laptop? I put my hands up and I say, have you called me? And uh, yeah, and he, he, he asked me, he's like, how, how long have you been here? Because I've been upping the ante over the last few hours. And I said, uh, three days? And he said, what? I thought you were here since lunchtime. I'm like, yeah. So that shows you the, the chase. On day one of that engagement, we don't want to get caught. On the final day, we want to set all the alarms off and see what they do to chase us down. Trip everything and see what happens. Exactly. That is Mr. Robot. <laughs> you are Mr. Robot. So how did you get involved in art in the first place? What's the, what's the dynamic for you personally? I started DJing when I was 15. And in doing that, I would experiment with um, turntables, mini-disc recorders. And essentially what I was doing was creating montages or collages of sound, and I would mix them on my computer. But this was with a kind of musical goal. So I'd be looking to create new um, translations of music that I liked. Translating from one genre to another was something that I really wanted to do. And the, the, the gradual uh, shift a few years later into feeling a compulsion to, to have some music-making technology led me to go into um, cash converters regularly. And I would be drawn to particular pieces. I, I wasn't particularly sure why, but I think it was I, what I liked was having musical equipment, which doesn't require any kind of menu system or any kind of digital interface. It was all hands-on, it was all knob twiddling. And I found that as soon as I started to get some of this equipment, like it was for all from cheap stuff, maximum 50 quid per unit, and I would start experimenting with it in a way that was kind of not uh, necessarily musical by default, but for example, um, I remember just um, recording the sound of rubbing the microphone on my stubble and then sequencing the sampler I'd recorded that onto with a drum machine and then creating a piece of music from this little noise and it actually sounded a bit like a, vo a, like a human voice mixed up occasionally with a very tinny, tinny piano. And I think that was when I first, that was 2005, I started just experimenting with what can I do to have a conversation with my machines? That's where I began. So I wasn't creating music that was in my head. I was engaging the machines and in an open dialogue with them. Like, what can we do for each other? And um, that led me into experimenting with um, feedback loops. So I started to create these uh, kind of synthetic noises that sounded like very alien, powerful synthesizers, but they were all made from silence. So I'd harnessed the aesthetic of the digital circuits of the, of the devices I was using to essentially create their own voice. So I wasn't telling them what sound to make, and I stopped telling them what sound to make, and I started introducing 
silence and exposing the characteristics of each machine's harmonic distortion profile or what happens to it when it starts getting really overloaded so that I can personify these machines and think of them as my collaborators. And when I started going down that route, I definitely was in the, um, in the art territory. This is not music anymore. And when I started learning a bit more about the theory and about the history of, um, of sound art, I think that, that helped me inform my confidence in terms of what I would record or what I would create. Um, and I took to recording in earnest. So I would carry around with me a little toolbox and in my toolbox would be um, electromagnetic microphone, uh, uh, what's called a piezo transducer microphone, which is like, a, like you have a fret uh, on a guitar, has, a, has one of these microphones in it for recording vibrations. And uh, a little sampler, which I could connect a decent condenser mic up to. So I was able to record things. So, and also I had a, a watch, which was a sampler as well. So I could record, I don't know, probably about an hour's worth of audio just on my watch alone. So I had a mixture of different recording formats that I could use. And I started recording things that were going on in my life. So the, the notion of doing these field recordings, conversational recordings between people with their consent, and then, uh, and then composing a kind of a, a, a frame around it. So I think at this point, uh, moving into field recording and, and composition, at that point, I, I think I'd left music behind and they separated. So I'd had my musical practice, my DJing and music production and performance. And then there was the sound art side. So um, yeah, I've, I've certainly been following that trail since then. I probably should have realised or thought that there might be a sequence to it that the, the, the DJing maybe came first and it evolved into this. I really like the phrase having a conversation with your instruments or with your equipment. And I kind of had this picture in my mind of like painting a portrait. You know, you're almost allowing that to emerge as a, as a portrait of, of the individual piece of equipment. In terms of other uh, conversations that exist, in, uh, in my work. I think Heist was the clearest one because it's actually in the chat room. So that's, that is as conversational as it gets. With Malignancy, I, th I think that was, yeah, certainly more of a solitary experience and more of an internal conversation, more of a ventilation than a conversation. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely come on to your Malignancy project um, as maybe our next port of call, but maybe first we should pause and have a cup of coffee. Sounds good. Right, so we are back after a cup of coffee for me and a cup of coffee for you. Yep and another chance to look at the fantastic scenery on the 31st floor. Brilliant. And we were talking a little bit just in, in the, the break about uh, Richard Prince and Gretchen Andrew as two artists who use uh, the internet as source material or in their work. How do you use the internet? So when I think of the internet, to me it is connections, it's packets, sockets, traffic, and what I like to do with my work is to strip away the uh, user interface that we have to the internet. 
So we have the presentation layer. So for example, the images that we see are all operating at the presentation layer. I like to uh, kind of strip away the presentation layer, the application layer, and expose the transport layer and to essentially look at what's going on under the hood. So the machinations of the internet as a network are how I tap into using the internet artistically. And actually the, uh, the dovetailing of this with sound is that we all used to listen to the sound of the internet with a dial-up modem. And uh, so what my work is like a CPR on the dial-up modem. It's reviving it, bringing it back. Let's listen to the sound of the internet again because we used to and let's not forget it. That's true, isn't it? That there used to be dial-up modems and you'd hear the characteristic whir as it was going through the registration tones to try and make a connection. And, you know, the, 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 the wonder of the connection and the connectivity was made apparent through this device as you were listening to it. You were kind of waiting for your connection to the world. And now we just take that for granted so much and it's just there. And, and so how would you then take that as your material and then make it, I suppose, trans, transpose it into sound and into soundscapes? Would that be the way that you would then... Piping the network traffic directly into the sound card is exactly the same practice that a dial-up modem is doing. So I started experimenting with that when I was about 15. And that culminated in me recording some sonification pieces in the last few years where I really wanted to have not just the sound of the internet, but actually the sound of an attack on the internet and uh, to capture in sonification the, um, the process of intrusion and of reconnaissance and of penetration and capture those in a way that reflected the kind of urgency and the material of what it was that was being hacked. And I thought, yes, I can do this and I can run this sound through my studio equipment and make it sound absolutely enormous and use the kind, the kind of production methods that I would use for making music. I'd be able to apply to this, the sound of data and carve a character out of data. And what does the sound of an attack sound like? I mean, of course, we're using words to try and describe it, but it would be kind of ironic if actually the sound of of an attack, let's say, on a nuclear base was actually very melodious and calming and, and gentle. Is it naturally aggressive and, you know, we, we use metaphors of attack and penetration and so on. Is it, is it that how it naturally comes across or do you have to somehow compose or add that as an element to what, what, your, what your material is? The sonic aesthetic that naturally comes out of these attacks is kind of like, it sounds like a kind of whining noise to begin with because it's a very repetitive network traffic pattern which is just constantly going and essentially seeking out targets on, on the, the perimeter of, of whatever organisation is being targeted. And the, the growth from that whining noise into something which is more, more of an expository bridge between the, the target, as in the concept, and the, the actual sonic material comes down to what happens next in terms of the processing. So the studio processing will be, in my case, uh, distortion-led and looking to create tension and release. So it's, it's not been my intention to, to uh, actually filter and 
tweak the audio signal so that it sounds melodious. So it would be possible to compose something which was quite nice sounding, and nice is a, is a loaded term, as in not apocalyptic, which is generally much more my vibe. My sonic vibe is much more apocalyptic, paranoid, harrowing, and I think that comes across in my sonification work. So there seems to be all sorts of um, potentials for either play or dynamic around the, the natural process flows of the internet and then how you can exploit those or repurpose them into some sort of artwork. I want to talk to you about your malignancy project because this seems to be a big piece of work and, and it seems to be a very personal piece of work and well do you want to start by saying something about it? Yep sure. So malignancy is a, a sound work uh, presented as a as a claustrophobic and sensorially deprived experience at Cable Depot. And the sound material was uh, recorded over uh, 12 years by me and my mum. So it was, it was kind of like a, a memorial to my mum in capturing her journey through chemotherapy and medical treatment and then palliative care. So uh, it's a mixture of different types of recordings. Um, I used electromagnetic uh, microphones to capture the sound of a chemotherapy machine saving my mum's life and then I took that material and stripped it down to its what's called a, it's basically its sinusoidal essence as in the very the, the kind of the, the sound atoms that make up the work and then reconstructed and composed new material which surrounded the raw recordings so uh, other recordings included like the vibrations of the machines and uh just the regular audio. So that work is split into two halves where the first half is symbolic of the cellular manipulation which uh, chemotherapy affords us. So there is a dose of uh, fear and hope at this point. And it's an examination of the temporal stages surrounding the oncology ward waiting room before you go in, after you go in, and the turbulent journey around it. The second half is more about acceptance and is pretty much untouched. So that's that includes a recording of a chemotherapy machine doing a maintenance chemo, so not to save a life but to extend it, and then a field recording of um, the hospice garden, the birds far away traffic. So there's essentially there's, a, there's kind of a yin-yang element to it. One is about what you can change and the other half is about what you have to accept. I was taken by a lot of different aspects of this piece and one of them being the first half with the, the kind of invasive nature of the kind of chemo, it's almost back to the kind of hacker thing isn't it, the kind of that, it's the same terminology of attack and, and repulsion and, and boundaries and invasion and, and, and it kind of seemed to resonate in some sort of a way. And then as you say the flip side with uh, the care and the palliative and, and the conversation the natural world and that sense of acceptance yeah it's very powerful um and i wanted to ask how you felt about it being in that situation with your mum on a personal level and making the decision what made you want to make art at that time i i would say it's a disembodiment of trauma it's like ventilating something while it's in flight and I think the f fact was that at that first point, um, back in 2008, when we started making it, 
I was always carrying that little toolbox around with me. So it was kind of a pattern of my behaviour that any kind of novel situation that I was, I was in, I would record it. And you were saying that it also provided a little bit of a sense of distance or enabled you maybe to kind of be the creativity and the doing of it, maybe allowed a little bit of distance on the actual experience of, yeah. of it? Yeah, I think um, I use productivity and creativity as a coping mechanism. So I just leap straight into doing, being productive. That's kind of my reflex. So yeah, it was, I suppose, inevitable for me personally to try to do something productive and creative with that experience, as well as being supportive. And how did the carers react to having you recording stuff, or was it, um, was it almost not noticeable? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. So because she had a room by herself and it was, yeah, it was like a, a pump machine, so we were, we were left on our own for ages anyway, so it was completely unintrusive, uh, which I'm grateful for, because I think that would have been uh, quite traumatising to have been told not to, so I'm glad I had the opportunity. And how did your mum, what did your mum think about you recording the process? Uh, yeah, I think she, because she also recorded some herself as well, and it turns out I learned that um, all my interest in sound, like she has the same. So what was her interest in sound? Yeah, she just had a natural reflex towards recording it as well, which, which I'm very grateful for. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So you're going to be looking ahead, working on a project where you are inviting people to phone in. Do you want to tell me a little bit about yeah. that? I'm not going to try and scramble your beautiful concept for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, certainly. That's Leave Me a Message. And it's about reasons why we would have to leave Earth. So the themes are existential risk and uh, improving the, the world around us for the next generations. And we're inviting uh, artists, researchers, activists, and, uh, and UK and US government people who have uh, specialism in existential risk to uh, contribute three wishes to muse on the question, what wishes would you make to benefit humans for the next thousand years? These wishes are then uh, recorded by either by children in the submitter's life or by um, other kids that we rope in to do it. And uh, then the show will take place as a, uh, as a phone number, which you dial, and then you treat it to a classic telephone machine aesthetic where you get to choose which wishes come true. Press one to end poverty, etc. And uh, the, it, what I've asked for is an emphasis on a technical and scientific material so that we get to juxtapose complex subject matter with uh, the sound of a child making a wish. And, uh, and then at the end of, uh, of, of navigating the, the telephone menu, uh, the audience can, will be prompted to leave their own message, which can then feed into future work. And that's going to be hosted for two years at, uh, in the rafters at Cable Depot as a cassette answering machine. And your choice of existential risk is the focal point for the project? That comes from, uh, initially, I, I think it's that idea of catastrophe, certainly, that uh, is thematically ever-present in anything I do around nuclear research. And it's building upon that because it's not the only catastrophe that we could face. And when I uh, look at the, the output, for example, the Cambridge Centre for the Study of Existential Risk, their plots and their, their, the way that they see the future over the next 10, 20, 50, 100 years 
it makes for very compelling reading and it's it's fantastical so for example in 50 years we may have a military ai that goes rogue and starts a mutiny and decides to initiate civil war you know that kind of thing sounds like science fiction but it's actually being produced by the scientific community which means that now is a really great time to treat it like it's potential fiction but also like it has a very real potential so it's asking questions rather than trying to give answers even though the wishes are prescriptively benevolent towards the the, the, the human species for the next thousand years it still isn't intending to solve any problems but simply to create awareness and get those questions asked and are you feeling optimistic yeah i think the more adam curtis documentaries i watch the less optimistic i feel so uh, <laughs> i think um yeah I, I remain optimistic also i think that there is a lot of discourse that needs to happen with just the wider public about cultural hegemony and psyop operation like psychological operations by governments to influence people's opinions in that realm i can see that there is plenty not to be optimistic about but i think if people question where their opinions come from rather than repeating them then that's that's a step towards uh, a brighter future but i think uh, yeah a lot of people are disillusioned with government and the for, for example like the notion of um boston dynamics military robots which are terrifying check them out being controlled by ai and running loose like this sounds like something out of black mirror but the thing is that these robots are beginning to be deployed for actual operations in public um things like these terrifying dogs that <laughs> that, that run at insane speeds that kind of uh technology is difficult to be optimistic about but i think that the improved connectivity and uh, ability for people to communicate with each other and share um, share their interests and learn from each other is something to be optimistic about. Well, Moose, that's probably a fantastic place at which to end this and to say thank you so much for this conversation. I'm fascinated by all that you do and in that last section where you were talking on the one hand about rogue AI bots controlling the world and, and uh, all the existential risk and nuclear catastrophe that's just around the corner, you had that glint in your eye, which to me kind of gets to the heart of this paradox that I still don't feel I've quite resolved in that, or rather maybe there's nothing to resolve, that, that it is that is it's terrifying. There is this kind of world out there that is quite uh, well, very challenging, but it's exciting at the same time and, and your excitement for it and your engagement with it and your translation of that into artistic projects and artistic responses is fantastic and um, so long may it continue and thank you so much for this conversation. It's been a privilege, thank you. For listening to this episode of Something to Do with Art, I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback via social media, and check out the podcast notes for links and further information. 
That's it for this episode. Many thanks to the very wonderful Berwick Livingston for the music, Danielle Blyde for logo design, and to everyone who has taken part and helped me with this project. I hope to catch up with you again soon.